just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1984. And it seems to me that I'm hearing the voice of Pod. The movie? Amadeus. Welcome to uh, Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I love movies. And uh, <laughs> I am joined, as always, to talk about movies with my friend and also an amazing critic, a, a voice of film, Amy Nicholson. Welcome, Amy. Oh, Paul, welcome, welcome to you. We are starting our Oscar Best Picture series, which I am very, very excited about. Just to go in, look at what won in the past. Examine why and how we felt about it, and do we stand by that choice today? And we are starting with Amadeus for a very good reason. Two very good reasons. One, this is a movie that was kicked off the AFI list, put on, kicked off, justice for Amadeus. We've always wanted to go back and cover it. And two, Paul, I cannot think of a better movie to kick off this Best Picture winner series. I mean, this is a movie that questions the very nature of are we able to spot genius in the moment? Or do we gravitate toward politically friendly Salieri-esque mediocrity? Well, I am ready to break this down. I'm also ready to look at this movie from the point of view of the Hollywood system, how we made this movie, the cultural phenomenon of it, and the choices that were made. This could have been a movie that was made in a very big way, but instead we see a lot of craftsmanship in the choices made here. There are a lot of independent choices made in a big blockbuster. There really are. I mean, just the casting alone, really going back and appreciating the bold casting moves that Milos Foreman made here. I am astounded that this movie existed at, at all. We'll also be looking at the fallout of careers. Did this help hurt? You know, what does a movie like this do when it becomes all-encompassing? Does it actually help the actors involved or not? And man, what does it mean to end a movie screaming, this goes out to my mediocre homies? Mediocrity is everywhere. I absolve you. Boy, how do you leave the theater being like, yeah, that's me. I'm mediocre. I do not know. But first, let me raise my baton and let's unspool it. 
The year is 1984, and the planet has Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart fever, baby. Take Hamilton fever and double it because we are talking about a Broadway show that racked up Tony wins, inspired David Lee Roth to pretend to conduct on MTV, and it was so beloved by Prince that people believe that Prince actually models his outfits on Amadeus. Not the movie, but the actual Broadway stage show. Remember what he was wearing in Purple Rain, right? Those those outfits, those collars. I mean, that's very Amadeus. I mean, basically every big name in music and theater and film is trying to cast this movie adaptation of this giant hit play. And when they do, it dominates the Oscars. I mean, it wins eight of its 11 nominations. And one of the ones that lost was the two leads who were playing creative rivals competing against each other for best actor. I mean, Amadeus is so dominant at the Oscars that when the great actor Lawrence Olivier came on stage to a huge standing ovation to present best picture, he doesn't even mention the other nominees. Take a listen. Dear ladies and gentlemen, thank you more than I have ever wanted or tried to thank anybody for such a perfectly wonderful reception. Thank you so much. I hope I won't let the occasion down too badly. I'm here to present uh, the Best Picture Award, and the winner for this is Amadeus. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Olivier was 77 years old, and he was not in good health. But this moment, like so many moments at the Oscars, you know, the La La Land moonlight switcheroo, the time when 81-year-old Kim Novak presented an award to Frozen, people on Twitter made jokes about her face, including somebody who's running for president. Even that speaks to one of the big ideas in Amadeus, which is that we, as a society, we want to think that we will revere our immortal talents while they are alive. But sometimes, even when we think we're trying to, trying to bring them out there for that applause, We make their lives harder. You know, applause does not last for everyone. Mozart didn't even hear most of the applause he's gotten. He dies young and poor with a poorly attended funeral. You could say that at the time, his rival Salieri has more wealth. He has more political connections. But he lives long enough to suffer seeing his music forgotten. Amadeus is directed by Milos Forman and written by Peter Schaefer, who also wrote the hit play. It's a fantasy, right? It's about this infant genius, that's Mozart, who barely matures, and a court composer named Salieri, who has dedicated his life to becoming a musician, and he can't understand why God gave all this talent to a party boy who loves fart jokes. I mean, the movie opens with old Salieri slashing his wrists and being sent to an asylum where he gives confession to a priest, telling him why witnessing pure musical genius drove him to destroy Mozart and even God himself. Now, everybody wanted to be in this movie. Mick Jagger, Mel Gibson, Kenneth Branagh, David Bowie, Mikhail Baryshnikov. I mean, The list, it goes on and on. But after a huge casting search, Milos Forman hires two barely known actors. Tom Hulse is cast as Mozart. Now, you might remember Tom Hulse as being in National Lampoon's Animal House. He was the guy who contemplates whether or not to date rape a girl. Uh, He has an angel and devil on his shoulder. Here, take a listen. Jackal, look at those gazongas. 
You'll never get a better chance. If you lay one finger on that poor sweet helpless girl, you'll despise yourself forever! Shout out to our devil angel runner in The Emperor's New Groove. And Salieri is F. Murray Abraham, who's been kicking around for decades doing bit day parts as cops and surviving off of commercials. I mean, he was the green leaf in the Fruit of the Loom commercials back in the day. I remember him in these commercials. Here he is playing a dock worker in another commercial advertising Listerine. Andy, what do you think of the taste of Listerine antiseptic? Terrific, really terrific taste. You don't want me to tell them what I really think, do you? You use it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, twice a day. It kills the um, germs that can give you bad breath and it lasts for hours. Hey, that wasn't so good. Let me do it over. That was fine, Andy. Oh, I get it. Don't call us, we'll call you. Listen, mister, let me tell you what I really think. I use it, but it tastes crummy! Listerine's got the taste people hate twice a day. Okay, so this movie has the chucklehead from National Lampoon, and it has the guy who sells Listerine. I mean, remember, this is 1984. This is the year of massive bangers dominating the box office. Ghostbusters, Temple of Doom, Beverly Hills Cop, Gremlins, Police Academy, Splash, Footloose, Karate Kid, Romancing the Stone. And now you're making an $18 million movie about two dead composers, and you're casting two nobodies? That is a major, major, major financial risk. And honestly, on Miller's Foreman's part, a truly creative leap of faith. But Amadeus comes out on September 19th, 1984, just after that huge summer season ends. And it is a big hit. And these nobodies, Tom Holtz and F. Murray Abraham, end up facing off against each other at the Oscars. It's Mozart versus Salieri, round two. So what was in the zeitgeist that weekend in September? It was a pop song that forced everybody to think about the arc of a long career. It's about a singer who first hit the charts 24 years before this, and with this song, becomes the oldest woman to ever have a number one hit at the ripe old age of 44. It is a woman whose hair is the only thing on earth that could make Mozart jealous, and it is the song that will title her own biopic. It is Tina Turner and What's Love Got to Do With It. This movie, love Tina Turner, the best. She's kind of like a modern day Mozart, really. (laughs) (laughs) She is. You know what? I I have to tell you this about Amadeus just right about the beginning. Major flashback here. I think this movie is my Shawshank Redemption. Like, I cannot think of a movie that we have covered on this show that I have seen more without actually planning to watch it, you know, or I haven't like put on Amadeus, but somehow in my life, I have seen Amadeus so many times. I I have this movie memorized in my bones in a way that I did not realize I had memorized even until I watched it again. I 100% agree. There was something about this film. It was always on. It felt like this was the movie that my parents went back to a lot. Like you said, Shawshank. It's just a movie that felt of its time. It was something that I couldn't get away from in 1984. Now, in 1984 is an interesting year, too, for film. We're talking about a year where The Karate Kid comes out, Nightmare on Elm Street, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, all films that we've done here on Unspooled. But this is the classy movie of 1984. And there's something really interesting, and I was really frustrated watching this movie because I couldn't find the original version of it. I could only find 
the director's edition of it, which adds over 20 minutes to the film. And depending on who you ask, they will say it either makes the film better or makes the film worse. I mean, one of the things that the director's edition does is it rounds out F. Murray Abraham's character a little bit more. It it goes into his obsession with God and how much he is given over to God to be his composer. Uh, and they also add a lot more of the opera scenes in. I, I don't know if you were able to watch it. I couldn't find the original edition. I couldn't find the original one either. So I watched this one, which is why the new scenes to me, I, it was like, I feel like the subtle little bits he fleshed out in F. Murray, I didn't notice. But I did notice that he had this like new subplot that he cut out where it's really about Mozart trying to find money being like a music teacher and just taking all of his jobs are like super beneath him. Like when he shows up at the house where they want him to teach the daughter how to play piano, but the dogs are just barking. And it's obviously from the sound of all the dogs barking, a place where music cannot exist. Stop it! Stop! He always howls when he hears music. He's got to break them. He's got to break them of their habit. Play, please, please. Like that, those scenes, those scenes at that house are like one of the things they had to add. They added back as well. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, there is some really good things that they flushed out. I don't know if you needed these things. And again, reading up about them, I don't know how this movie paces out. It's long. The special edition is very long. It's three hours. I don't know if it would have been as big of a hit if it was this long, because it felt like, even when it came out in 1984, this was a movie that was shockingly a big film. Like this was not, you know, this is not the type of film that was released or that got this popular, right? Big movies like this. I guess Reds was pretty long. But but like Reds does not inspire pop hits afterwards. I mean, like Reds does not make Falco do a song called Amadeus. <laughs> By the way, uh, when that song came out, that was the biggest German hit to date in America. So German composers just like knocking them down here. I, I lived through this moment. I remember this. This movie was in my bones. And it's so funny to think of all the different directions it could have gone in. I don't know if you knew this, but in um, Milos Forman's autobiography, he tells a story about how one studio offered to fully fund the film on one condition. Do you know what that was? No. That Walter Matthau played the role of Mozart. Whoa. Walter Matthau was a uh, reported like Mozart <gasps> enthusiast. Matthau at this point is 60 years old and Mozart what? only lives to 35. <gasps> oh my God. I was thinking about this. Like there are so many things that happen in this movie that are really hallmarks of auteur driven directors, which is interesting because this is a movie that when you start the film, it says Peter Schaefer's Amadeus, right? It's not Milos Forman's Amadeus. It's Peter Schaefer's Amadeus because it's based on his stage play. And we already talked about him casting these two, I'm going to say unknown actors, for all intents and purposes, unknown actors. It's not only that that's kind of strange. It is a movie that, like Barry Lyndon, is, you know, shot 
without the use of light bulbs or any other modern lighting devices, right? The, the whole film is shot with natural light. Which is crazy when you're crazy. going into like ancient wooden opera houses to perform the same operas in the same opera houses and you're waving fire around on giant sticks. Yes. <laughs> Where the chandeliers are actual fire. Oh my God. No, and I think it really makes the movie very grand. I think Barry Lyndon, I love Barry Lyndon, but this looks, this is a big budget, naturally lit film, which is wild to me. You might not think that a few simple words could make you crave McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. But if you listen closely to the sound of me saying, McGriddles, McMuffin, you might be wrong. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The thing that I was most surprised at, and I don't think I ever put it together, was the lack of accents. Yeah, that everybody's in here just talking straight up American. They're not even doing that thing that you do in biopics where it's like, and now we're all British for some reason, even though this is set in Rome. He cast Americans. He deliberately cast Americans. Kenneth Branagh says that's one of the reasons he lost out on this part is because he didn't want anybody who's even going to put a British accent in there in any way. No British accents in this film. It was going to sound American. But then you, you have Jeffrey Jones playing the Emperor of Vienna, and he's just doing it like Jeffrey Jones, but he's surrounded by these British guys. What I realized was who gives a fuck? Like, it's kind of the way they did Chernobyl uh, on HBO just a little while ago. They didn't put on accents. They just cast a TV show with a lot of British actors. I think that it actually makes this movie better because you're not taken out of the world by anything. And and I... Well, and I think it makes it sound so fresh, right? Because yes. like... That's the thing with these kind of old classy biopics is there's like that template. They're going to sound weirdly British for no reason at all. Everybody's going to act stuffy. Everybody's going to talk like this is an older time period. They're going to put up this almost like gauzy wall between us, like those kind of privacy walls between like us and the past where the past is like through this distance. This is a movie that opens with people like licking the cream from people's plates and everybody's calling each other stupid. Like that is sounding, it sounds like it's happening today. No, 100%. There's a sense of fun to it. And I think that that's why this movie works. It doesn't feel stuffy, like you said. And I don't want to throw stones at Shailene Woodley. But you avoid the kind of problem that Ferrari has, where I think a lot of people are just piling on Shailene Woodley for a terrible Italian accent in that film. And God bless her. I think she's a great actress. Whatever. It's hard to do accents. But that becomes a talking point. You can get checked out of things. And I think what this movie does is take this big world, something that people probably wouldn't be interested in, like Hamilton. It brings it to the masses. Are people interested in that biography of Hamilton? No. But when it's put on stage in the way that it's put on stage, you know, Lynn Miranda basically gets us all on board. We're all in. 
And that's kind of what is happening here. It's just different. It's kind of contemporizing this stuffy bit of history. Yeah, because I feel like that's one of the hardest things for history, films, history, books, history, anything to capture is that like what is happening in the story was happening to everybody in the story for the first time. I think like everybody through history is thinking to themselves like, boy, do I live in the craziest period in history? Nobody's ever like, boy, I live on a real dumb period of history. They're like, things are nuts. Court is weird. What am I doing with my life? Like there's not this sense of fate that I think a lot of historical movies have. Like to make the past just feel fresh, to make it feel like people are free to make their mistakes for the first time, that they're new, that there's not this like portentousness hanging over it. I think honestly for like the movie and the audience, sometimes a director like Mila Schwarman has to make this just hardcore break and be like, yeah, we're going to have fart jokes. We're going to have so many fart jokes. We're going to shoot scenes of people playing piano. Like this is the jazz era. Like people are just like wasted and bouncy and messy and chaotic Everybody's having fun here because I want you to realize that this is fresh. This was fresh for them. And what's even more interesting is if you try to Google what really happened to Amadeus, you realize that this movie is largely fictionalized. This is a fantasy. Milo yeah, they're Schwarman, calling it a fantasy in the press interviews. They're like, we have made a fantasy or a fantasia is what they're saying, which is why now when you look at Amadeus and everybody's like, it got everything wrong. You're like, yeah, they know. They know that. They knew. Right. They're having fun. There's, this is about something else. Yeah, they make it this really fun, like, soap opera. I mean, that's what it is, you know? And I think that we saw that this year with BlackBerry. I don't know if you saw BlackBerry. I did see BlackBerry. I did. Th- oh, that movie was so fun. It's so fun. And it's the same idea. It's just riffing in this world, creating characters, creating events, making it a movie. Like, in the culture that we live in now... People would be trying to, well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. It's like, well, who cares? It's a movie, right? We're not like, read a book. If you want that, read a book. Right. There's no, I don't feel like, I feel like chasing after complete historical accuracy for the most part, unless you're really limiting it, like really limiting your scale, it feels so futile. You're just chasing a tale that you'll never completely catch because there's no way that a movie is ever going to be completely the truth about anything ever. It can't. It's a movie. It's a life compressed into like 90 minutes to three hours. It's impossible. And I think like looking for flaws is such a boring game compared to looking at what they changed and what they added and what they embellished and why. Like, why did they want to do that? And why does that make this story hit in a different way? What I really was interested in is the main struggle of this movie, which is jealousy, right? I think that's something that everyone can identify with. You look at somebody and you assume like they have it easier, they got it right, why can't I get the things that they can get? It's not about like the genius that is Mozart, but it really is about, you know, Salieri who can't kind of keep his eyes on his own paper, right? And I think there's a part of this story where you just, you wonder, did Mozart stop him from achieving success because he was so obsessed with why he wasn't as successful as Mozart. Right. Because like, if you ask somebody on the street to say like, Hey, hum me a couple bars of, of Salieri. Nobody knows how to do that. Right. I mean, the movie is even like making that such a horrible, beautiful point right at the beginning where Salieri is like in the mental hospital, trying to talk to the priest and being like, do you know any of my songs? And then finally just screwing with the guy. Can you recall no melody of mine? I was the most famous composer in Europe. I wrote 40 operas alone. 
Here. What about this one? Yes, I know that. Oh, that's charming. I'm sorry, I didn't know you wrote that. I didn't. You know, I went on kind of a hunt. I was like, where is the Salieri, the actual Salieri in pop culture? And there is one movie where they actually have a character playing Salieri to make a point where you can hear Salieri's music on screen. And I know you have seen this movie. It is in Iron Man. Okay, Iron Man, picture this. Uh, Tony Stark is like eating pizza with Jeff Bridges, you know, Obadiah. When he walks in the room, Obadiah is sitting at the piano and the music he is playing, Salieri. How'd it go? that bad, huh? Just because I brought pizza back from New York doesn't mean it went bad. Uh-huh. Sure doesn't. Oh, boy. Would have gone better if you were there. Uh-uh. What a beautiful connection there. I mean, I wonder who came up with that. I love that. <laughs> I mean, I love that they went that deep. What a smart move. I know. That actually really impressed me. I was like, Marvel franchise, you started out okay. And I, I will say, by the way, when I went looking to find that clip, uh, all the comments on YouTube, from like as recent as a month ago, we're like, boy, do I miss when the Marvel Universe felt like it was happening in the real world. This story is not the story of Amadeus. This is the story that Salieri is telling about Amadeus. And, you know, the truth is that in his very old age, Salieri does admit to murdering uh, Mozart. But a lot of people chalk that up to dementia. It seems like uh, Mozart died of strep throat, uh, ultimately. Yeah, people really don't know because kind of as you see in this movie, when Mozart dies, he is thrown into like a mass grave, which to me is just so brutal. You're like, here is a brain that regardless of the fact that like the body attached to it has been like farting and making fuck jokes with the whole movie, this brain was doing things that no other brain could ever do. And then you're watching them just pour lie, I guess, unceremoniously on it and decomposing a brain that I just want to put into a jar and figure out how on earth it worked. What was the spark in that brain? But there it is. A brain that creates eternal works of art is at the end just treated like a body. He decides, I mean, I heard that Mozart, when he died, he was so swollen and he smelled so bad, so bad that they just refused to give him an autopsy. They're like, we're not cutting him open. He just stinks. Wow. I mean, so that is true that Mozart really fell into despair. He was broke. Like he did not leave this earth as someone to even be studied. He didn't have the cachet, right? I mean, that's what we're agreeing to on on some level, right? Yeah. I mean, I find that to be like the second line of this movie that I just think is fascinating because honestly, there are rumors pretty early on that like, did Salieri have anything to do with it? Because Salieri did not get along at all with his wife, with Cassandra. And so like Cassandra does kind of start some rumors about it a little bit. But then what happens is like Salieri, he lives all the way up until like 1825. He dies when he's 75. He does die suffering from dementia. He did try to slash his own throat at the end. He was like in an institution. Um, And then six years after he died, Alexander Pushkin, Mm -hmm. you know, the Russian poet, Russian writer, he made a short story about Salieri poisoning him. He waited six years. And he's like, okay, and then he did this. And then they did an opera version about that. Then they did a silent film about it. Then they did a miniseries about it. And then this play came. So by that point, this idea of Salieri killing Mozart was really embedded 
you know, as we talk about this idea, like that gets traction, that that is based on something. I know we already talked about there are so many things that are not true here, but the thing that I was most surprised at that was not true was the laugh. That laugh of Mozart, Tom Hulse's laugh, was based on a director that Tom Hulse had worked with and laughed in the identical manner. Will you marry me? Yes or no? <laughs> And he never really came forward to say who that director was. But I love that that's not even near historically accurate, right? And and to go one step further, he based his character on John McEnroe's tantrums during tennis matches. Like, he really is saying, I don't need to go in the books. Like, the most that he did, uh, and this is a lot, is he spent six hours a day for six months learning how to play the piano. Uh, he played every Mozart symphony that was in the film. One of the interesting things about the the music in this film is like several professors of music has stated like after setting all the musical keys struck on pianos throughout the film, every key that struck is actually hitting the right note. So in other words, what you see is what you hear. So there is some accuracy there. But like the character of Mozart, this temperamental baby is a complete fabrication. But people do know like that he had a bizarre laugh. You know, there were like people wrote at the time that it was bizarre, but what does it sound like? Nobody, nobody had recording, of course. So like he does have to come up with this bizarre laugh. We know some stuff about like Mozart from his letters. Like we know that he was obsessed with making jokes about shit. Like when you look at the letters that survive between him and his dad, him and his wife, him and his like family, they, a lot of them end with like, I smear shit on your face as you sleep, you know, just like a joke. Or like sleep with shit on your chin, dripping down it. I don't know. It, I don't really understand the cadence of it. Actually, he was so obsessed with poop humor um, that after Amadeus came out, people found out that one of the songs that had been published after his death that he had written that his wife had given the the um, sheet music to that was published at the time as like a song called Let Us Be Glad. They discovered in 1991 that he had actually called the song Lick mich im Ars. Uh, that's my terrible German. That means he called it lick me in the ass. Now that we know the lyrics, this is what it sounds like. It's German, but yeah, they're singing about asses. And they said you couldn't make a German opera. (laughs) Uh, But then also people will say like, hey, at this time, everybody in Vienna was just really obsessed with poop humor. You know, But there's that debate, like, what would Mozart be doing if he was alive today? You know, Falco, when he did Rock Me Amadeus, he was like, if Mozart was alive today, he'd be a pop star. I feel like there's a world where if Mozart was alive today, he would be, like, working for South Park. Like, I don't know. He'd be writing the Book of Mormon. Okay, I was going to say, you know, would, would he be our Weird Al? Or he'd be Weird Al. And, like, there's Weird Al in here. That's what I love about it, too, is, like, you're watching this movie and, like, Miller Schwarman is like, yeah, and even at the time, he's doing these great numbers and people are turning them into Weird Al, like, in front of him. They're making fun of Don Giovanni in front of him, and he's kind of loving it. I'm a famous postman. And we're a famous postman. You know what I found interesting about this film, just in looking at how it was received? We talk about this movie that is a cultural phenomenon, right? But it is one of the few Best Picture Award winners to never crack the box office top five. 
here's a movie that like we just talked about, like it, everyone is on board with, but yet it's not in the top five of the box office. I found that so surprising because I was like, it made over $80 million. So you think it may have just had a long, like it's staying power was long. Eventually everybody saw it, but it never was, and it, it didn't open or move up. It just was a constant flow of money in. Kind of like, uh, honestly. That's the only thing I can think of to any, make it make like, sense. Uh, yeah. Like that Glenn Powell, Sidney Sweeney movie, you know, anyone but you. Like it just, it stayed at like three or four. I mean, a little <laughs> bit higher than five to make all that money. Man, I mean, I guess it also speaks to just like how competitive that box office was at yeah, that time. Yeah, 1984. Like, that was a competitive year to be making money. But I love that. I love that like they kept it in theaters and that it made its money back and that it was really solid. Although, wait, what are we doing? Here we are. We're talking about like maybe the trick question, which is like, can something be respected in its day? You know, like what does it matter if the audience respects it at time? Because like when I watched Amadeus this time, one of the things I really was noticing was that sometimes when he's like premiering Don Giovanni, you know, about like the death of his dad, about his feelings about his dad, about like forgiveness and guilt and repentance and anger and shame and all of these dark emotions. And it's this crazy looking opera house and people are wearing like shiny black outfits with crazy red masks. It looks so modern. It looks so scary. They're performing it in that theater where the opera premiered. You're looking at the audience and it's like half empty. People weren't there. Can you imagine the flex today we would imagine of being like, I was at the premiere of Don Giovanni. But what this movie shows us is he is doing this great art that's selling out in LA like now. They've had Don Giovanni here this fall and nobody came, you know? which as a person who loves movies that nobody watches at the time, speaks to me very deeply that nobody was there. I think that we see this often in art and music. The staying power sometimes is really what makes a great piece of art. You can make something that is very much in the zeitgeist, and that's one thing. And then there's another part of that, which is what will people be talking about years later? You know, people... So many stories of people dying penniless or dying unrecognized and all their success coming afterwards. And it's interesting. Obviously, we know Mozart. Mozart is a giant piece of our, you know, musical history. But it's also interesting that because this person is so well known, that this becomes the definitive story about them. I would argue that many people don't know how historically inaccurate it is. And probably most people who've seen Amadeus, if you were to ask them about Amadeus, would say this is his story. And I wonder about that because as much as I earlier just said like, oh, it's so fun to kind of play with the truth when it's the only way in, are we doing a disservice to it? Or do we just say no? Like film is film and you don't have, you have no obligation to teach people. You can just, like, we're, this is not Ken Burns, right? Where we can do whatever we want. But it is funny to think that before I did my research to understand how wrong this movie was, I assume this is the story of Mozart. But I think, okay, a couple of things. A, I think it's actually weirdly kind of close. I, I would say it's like 70%. I think 70 is pretty high for a movie having this much fun. You think it's, it's that much? A movie honestly, that they called a full fantasy? <laughs> kind of, yeah. I think it, like, in its own comic way, gets at some stuff that's really real. Like, it, I feel like you really get the character of, like, his wife, Costanz, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And I really like Costanz. I mean, weirdly, part of the, the story with like her is that Mozart was first in love with her older sister. She had this older sister who was a singer and Mozart was trying to marry her, but she like was not into it, rejected him and married somebody else. Mm-hmm. So then he like leaves town, comes back and he's like, all right, I'll, t- I'll take the younger one. But like Costanz, I love the Costanz in this movie because I think she's treated a l- with a lot more depth than she has been in any other like she had been in a lot of biographies up until then. Because, you know, the beat on her at the time, like when other people were writing biographies of Mozart was like. You know, she was this landlady's daughter. She was just sort of an ordinary girl. She didn't know how brilliant her husband was. All she cared about was money. She didn't take good care of him. Their house was messy. She didn't cook. You know, the kind of things that like these biographers who were men would say about a woman who they're like, basically, you should have fed him better. You should have kept him healthier. You should have kept him alive. You shouldn't have made him work all the time for money. Forgetting that like you're somebody, she, they actually had like tons of kids who just kept dying and your husband is like drunk all the time. Yeah, she gets to be like, please make us some money because we are starving and really hungry. So there's this really uncharitable view of her through history. Mm-hmm. But the Costanz here, I think you see that in her. You see that like, yeah, she's tough. And yeah, like she needs to prioritize money because she's not an artistic person. But that makes her also his protector in a way that's really sweet. Like she's the only one who will yell at his dad. Oh, splendid. So now we're going to let a perfect stranger into our house. Who is we? Who is letting who? Could you please wait outside? Uh, Yes, ma'am. Look, old man, we spend a fortune on you. And all you can do is criticize from morning to night. And she's the only one who will be like, hey, you got to shape up. You got to actually make us money. Like, we need this. How are we supposed to live, Wolfie? Do you want me to go in the streets and beg? Don't be stupid. All, all they want to see is your work. Shit. What's wrong with that? Shut up. Just shut up. One royal pupil and the whole of Vienna will come flocking. They'll come anyway. No, they won't. They love me here. I know how things work in the city. Oh, yes, you always know everything, don't you? But none of that means that, like, this woman and the way that she's, like, played, I think, really, 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 really well by Elizabeth Barrage doesn't mean that she doesn't love her husband. And if she doesn't understand his genius and how it works, nobody else in this movie does either. Nobody does. Well, I thought one of the interesting scenes that they added to the director's cut was the scene where she's willing to sleep with Salieri for this job, right? Like, she takes off her top. She gets caught in that moment. And I think that actually paints her in a really interesting moment. She's willing to do anything to help her husband, right? She's not cheating on her husband. She's no. doing that for him. And it's so sad, isn't it? Like, yes. Cause he like, yes. he tries to blackmail her. He's like, basically, if you don't do this, your husband will never get a job. And then she's upset. But when she comes back, the way she comes back into that room to do it, and she's like costumed herself up in a fancy outfit to try to look posh. You know, she's trying to act like she's in a good mood when you know that she's absolutely miserable. Yeah. The way she takes off her clothes and then he just like is like, he shows her out just immediately and makes her feel like trash. That is a brutal scene. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.
Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Now, on the Salieri front, this is where probably the movie does take its most liberties, right? Because I didn't quite understand this, but, you know, Salieri was recognized as one of the best music teachers of his generation. You know, he had students like Franz Liszt, Franz Schubert, Beethoven. He he taught the students for free, married into nobility, very Yeah, he wealthy. wasn't like a virgin like he was in this movie, like an no. angry, angry virgin. No, I mean, he he died the wealthiest composer in Vienna. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about like, who is the analog to Salieri? But then that seems so mean to think about it today. But there are like the wealthy directors who are like honored now. And then in, we kicked a lot of them off the AFI list. You know, this is yeah. like a crazy dark arc that happens to people. By the way, I had this false memory. I feel crazy even admitting this. But re-watching this movie the whole time, I had this false memory that right at the very end, it was going to end with Salieri dropping his pants and showing that he cut off his dick so that he wouldn't be tempted to like have oh sex God. and then cheat on God. I don't know why. I really thought that was in this movie where he was like, I'll show you what I gave to God. I'm a virgin and I cut it off so I wouldn't be tempted. And I was so relieved that I guess I made that up. But I was really waiting for that scene this whole time. I could see that kind of oddly in the way that this movie plays out. Yeah, it's almost like so horror movie that you could see it happening. I think also part of it is thinking about how the way that F. Murray Abraham plays Mozart, you know, the kind of creepy talking about funerals and death like he is here. His funeral. Imagine it. The cathedral. All Vienna sitting there. His coffin. Mozart's little coffin in the middle. And then, in that silence, music, a divine music, bursts out over them all. A great mass of death. Requiem mass for Wolfgang Mozart, composed by his devoted friend, I was like, oh, oh, I get it. Gary Oldman just stole Salieri and put it into his Dracula. That's exactly what this is. Oh, yeah. They they look alike. The makeup looks alike. The way they're holding their wrists like that. He's doing a vampire act. And then like Gary Oldman just like, yeah, it's a vampire act and like does it himself. I I think that the interesting thing where you could probably point a finger at Salieri as sabotaging Mozart. And even though there really is no proof for it, there are letters that Salieri wrote complimenting Mozart and and, and supporting Mozart and even teaching Mozart's son. But I think if you were to draw this connection of like where he was sabotaged by Salieri, it may come from the fact that Salieri was on that side of people that wanted him to compose a German opera. And that was not done. Obviously, that's in the film, right? Italian operas only. And it made it incredibly hard to be a prominent composer in Vienna because it was an impossible task. It was an impossible task. 
Maybe he sabotaged him like that. Or he believed in him so much that he said, if anyone can do it, you could do you could do it. Yeah, because I don't think it was clear to me when I saw this movie as a kid nonstop that this is also, it feels like Milos Forman talking about what it's like working in Hollywood, right? Yes, 100%. You come into a room, you're a genius, and there are all these guys around who are just worried about their own jobs and their own standing, and they're figuring out ways to sound smart by criticizing what you're doing, by putting you in boxes, being like, there's too many notes. The most tiresome piece I heard it too. Tiresome? A young man trying to impress beyond his abilities. Too much spice, too um, too many notes. I love that. Too many notes. And it's like you, you see that, yes, when you can't comprehend, you overly note, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And I, the idea that they're talking about too many notes, when too many notes is what good movies get. Too many notes that make them mediocre, yes. right? But too many notes is like a real criticism that Mozart did get in his time. People said to him at the time, he had too many notes. So it feels like A, a Hollywood joke, but B... The truth. Well, the other thing that's kind of a Hollywood note as well, or a Hollywood parallel, you know, in the movie, they show this man in the black mask as Salieri, right? Salieri trying to steal or have Mozart write a song that he could then steal. It wasn't Salieri. It was, uh, in real life, it was Austrian Count Franz von Walslag, who was uh, notorious for commissioning. I love the way you say Austrian Count von Wolfslag. <laughs> Wolfslag. Uh, I mean, believe me, I'm I'm rushing through names on this one so no, quickly, so people can't get angry at me. That was a, that was a, that was genuine. I just thank you. <laughs> but you know, this count he commissioned other people's music to pass as his own, and he approached Amadeus for a requiem for his wife who died on Valentine's Day. And, you know, Mozart passed away before he could complete this. But this idea of, like, using other people's work. You know, we have people who rewrite movies. We have people who come in uncredited. Everybody was using each other to get ahead. And and this is, you know, a competitive field where you see, like, let's make one more step into Hollywood. Like, at one point, Mozart meets a very popular comedian of his time. He's like, write something for me and we'll be rich. Like, it's almost like, write a movie for, you know, I don't want to name anybody. (laughs) Like, but just write a movie for this comedian. I'll make a fake one up, okay? Great. To me, that scene is like if Kevin Hart came to Ari Aster and was like, write me something crazy, right? That's what this scene is. If you played Don Giovanni here, you would have had a wonderful success. You belong here. Out of the snobby court. You do anything you like. The more fantastic, the better. That's what people want. Fantasy. And I mean, that is what happens. That's what Tom Cruise used to do in the 90s. When Tom Cruise was great, he would see a new director come out and he'd go to that director and say, write me something, which is exactly, I use my star clout. We make a cool thing. It benefits both of us. But you also, uh, you lower yourself, right? You make a a popular thing because those shows were sold out. Yeah. And the people were loving them and they knew and they cared and they were singing his songs along with it. And you compare that to like, the half-empty crowd at Don Giovanni to the emperor falling asleep at his, like, Turkish musical about the harem. Yeah, why wouldn't you want to be a populist, right? Right. And and I think that you see that part of Mozart's issue was, like, he didn't have enough money, right? He he wasn't making money in this. He could have made more money there. You And now that we know that Salieri was making money, Salieri does feel uh, well-off throughout. Like, Salieri is never... 
wanting for money, you know, in this movie. Like he's, you know, it, like Mozart's so committed to what he's doing that he dies penniless. Yeah, I thought that was so much of the tragedy. Here is the greatest mind who had to think about what he was going to write to pay the bills. He didn't just get to sit into a room and like write about whatever he wanted. Like the thing that was on his mind was like, can I get a teaching job with the emperor's niece? Doesn't that just feel like such a horrible waste of his time and talent? But then it's also the truth. We have to eat. We have to live. You know, we don't just get to like lock ourselves up and like do the beautiful thing. I mean, when you're looking at this movie, like, and you're thinking about the emperor himself, you know, Jeffrey Jones, and then these minions, and then Mozart like walking into the room. To me, it felt like almost like an old school studio boss situation mm-hmm. where like the emperor is the studio boss who's in charge of like what gets greenlit basically because he's in controlling the royal budget. He gets to decide what goes up at the opera house, whether or not he's going to approve it. And then these minions are like all the executives and the producers. And then at the same time, you know, the movie is kind of revealing that the emperor has no clothes, I guess. The emperor doesn't know what he's doing. He like takes advice from everybody, doesn't make any decisions on his own. And he just keeps repeating that phrase. Oh, what is it? There it is. Like, that's him. That's his like big contribution. I mean, it is a cold idea about like who gets to make the decisions in the world, right? Well, I'll also argue too, like everybody wants a piece of success, you want to just say, oh, I was there. I was in the room. You see somebody that talented. And even by saying he has too many notes or making him do something a little bit different, you can then say, I am as good as I have been a part of this, right? That, that's something that I think is always at the center of our culture. Who greenlit that show? Who was behind it? Who believed in it when no one else did? Who, you know, social media posted it, right? This, this idea of, you know, everybody wants to take a claim to fame. You know, it, it, it it's funny because in the couple things that I've worked on that have been IP, everybody has an opinion about IP and why it was successful. And they all want to say, well, it was because I did this one thing. I did this one. Well, actually, it's because of this. It's actually because of this. And no matter what, yes, Mozart is a genius, but everybody wants to get in just enough to get a little shine on them as well. Right. And I think that leads to too many notes, right? I right. mean, this is my impression about how a, a meeting works in Hollywood, which is a little bit wrong, but I'll be the one to describe it because I can't get in trouble. Is like somebody comes in with an idea and everybody has to make at least one or two corrections so that they can say they helped whip it into shape, even if they're wrong. And even if the correction throws something off in the wrong direction, just to have like a footprint on it so it can belong to them a little bit, you know, just yeah. to, just to keep their own job. You can't sit in a meeting and not say anything. So you have to say something to keep your own job. And then at the same time, we get these cycles of like morality or rules or like censorship, which is also happening in this film too. You know, Salieri hires that like spy maid who I did not recognize as Cynthia Nixon. Did Neither not did recognize I. I know. her at all. 16 years old making this movie. And she leaks that his next opera is going to be Figaro. And Everybody's losing their mind because they're like, Figaro is censored. Figaro is censored. The emperor gets all upset about it. I am a tolerant man. I do not censor things lightly. When I do, I have good reason. Figaro is a bad play. It stirs up hatred between the classes. In France, it has caused nothing but bitterness. My, my own dear sister, Antoinette, writes me that she is beginning to be frightened of her own people. Sire, I swear to your majesty, there's nothing like that in the piece. I've taken out everything that could give offense. 
I hate politics. I'm afraid you're rather innocent, my friend. In these dangerous times, I cannot afford to provoke our nobles or our people simply over a theater piece. And I mean, I think that's also just an artistic thing that is absolutely at play all the time. You can't do that. You can't say that. I don't know how that's going to go over. There's a lot of censorship and there's a lot of self-censorship. I couldn't even figure out going back in time why Figaro was really censored. I mean, they're talking about this idea of like class uprising. Granted, I didn't do that much research. I read a couple articles, but I could not figure out like why Figaro itself, that story was so upsetting. So people can be mad about things at the time that seem obvious at the time. And then in distance, you don't understand why that was censored. And then you look back and you think about all the art that maybe didn't exist because you don't even understand why people were mad at the time. I think about that now because I think there's so many things we can't make movies about right now. Or when people do try to make movies that I think push the discourse a little bit towards uncomfortable places, you know, movies like Fair Play or something, for example, people get nervous. Like, I think I see a lot of people get nervous and critique movies based on what they think other people are going to think about them. Like, oh, that movie's too crazy. Oh, people are going to get mad about that. You know, like Saltburn, I think, got some of that blowback. People on Twitter are basically like the guys behind the emperor criticizing on behalf of other people so that they can sound smart. Like, is anybody even expressing an opinion they believe in? It's like you're looking at other people. I I experienced that when we first started performing at UCB here in Los Angeles. We were doing something that felt very New York. And I don't know how to describe it more than the stuff that we were doing in New York was edgy, but we were not trying to be edgy. We were just, that was just what it was. And when we came out to LA, I felt like we would make the same jokes and people were like, oh, I don't know if that we should be laughing at that. And you could feel like I'm looking around. Are other people laughing? Okay, everybody else is laughing and then I can laugh. Like this checking in to make sure it's acceptable. It's funny. It's this. And not saying that that was the funniest stuff. It probably was aired on edgelord stuff, you know. Um, but at the same time, it was like, but if you can get validation from other people, then you will laugh at it. And then you look at what gets validation in here, you know, that the biggest success we see is like a Salieri musical, right? We go from like Mozart doing his like dark Don Giovanni with flames everywhere and a half empty crowd to like the super packed audience to see a Salieri opera that he's just made like the biggest kind of flat spectacle. It's like literally a flat spectacle. You know, it seems like there's like 30 people in bright costumes standing on risers. So they almost just look like a flag of human beings singing at you and like screaming. And then the audience is like, this is amazing. The emperor's like, this is the greatest art I've ever seen. I believe it is the best opera yet written, my friends. Salieri. You are the brightest star in the musical firmament. You do honor to Vienna and to me. I mean, it felt like the experience of coming out of something like Avengers Endgame. And everyone's like, yeah, that was great. That was so meaningful. And is it going to laugh? And then Mozart, oh, the master of the non-compliment compliment. Oh, my God. Listen to this. Mozart. It was good of you to come. How could I not? How? Did my work please you? I never knew that the music like that was possible. You flatter me. No, no. One hears such sounds, and what can one say but 
Salieri. That was a brutal scene. It was brutal <laughs> because I felt like, again, this is, I also think, Salieri's point of view, and we also know it's false. But I love that moment because if that is true, if that happened, was that him misreading it or was that Mozart actually saying it? And I think that if we are to believe Salieri, Mozart wouldn't be that kind of crass. Like, I think we see that scene with Mozart in the beginning where he takes Salieri's sheet music and he improves upon it. Like, he doesn't think like, oh, this is trash and makes it better. He's like, oh, I can make this better. Like, and I think that like everything we know about Mozart is I don't think he would even be that confrontational. But I think that Salieri would be feeling, I don't think he actually likes it. I think he actually meant that as a dig. It's the way that all performers, I I think, feel, you know, do they they know the truth that I actually suck? Yeah, and I think that is so much... A, a compliment to like Milo Schwarman's craftsmanship and like the editing that like he's getting this compliment Salieri is from the emperor, but the camera is looking up to see if Mozart is there. The camera is being like, this doesn't matter too much to me is like this one man's respect. I mean, that's to me the heartbreaking thing about this movie is just like how much Salieri wants this guy that he alone, he alone actually seems to recognize that Mozart is a genius, right? Everybody mm-hmm. else is like, oh, he's talented. He's maybe a little bit too clever. I don't know. He's annoying. Let's not work with that guy. Right? They're like, yeah, he's a bit much. But Salieri knows what he's hearing kind of in a vacuum. He's like, holy mother of Lord. This guy is the real deal. And the pain of seeing it, it just kills him. And when Mozart does that fixing his march thing that you're talking about, I love how that scene is stayed. Because you're right, you see it in like Tom's performance. Mozart isn't coming in there like, oh, I'm a snotty, snotty snot, which he is in two. He's like, I'm the greatest opera writer that's ever been. But he's coming in there to be friendly, you know? He's kneeling, he's kissing the emperor's hand. He's like trying to get along with people. Like he's actually really trying to be like a nice person. And he's trying to be helpful. He's trying to be like, oh yeah, let me just make this better. And it just comes out of him so easily. Like he can't help being talented. And yet, when you look at Salieri's face, he can't help but just feel gutted, devastated. This guy makes it look so easy. The rest is just the same, isn't it? It doesn't really work, does it? Did you try? Shouldn't it be a bit more? Or this? And I think we've seen stories like this time and time again. Even a movie like Air speaks to this. You know, Michael Jordan's parents in that movie know his worth. And they fight hard for his worth. But it upends everything and creates a whole new world. And I think that oftentimes we live in a world where so many people are just playing by the rules that we are offended by anyone being really good. Like, you know, like there is like, it's like, no, no, you don't get ahead. And Mozart coming in and taking that music, creating an opera with too many notes, like they don't know how to deal with that because everybody else is playing by the rules. And these people who are geniuses are not playing by the rules. And when you don't play by the rules, if we talk about like James Cameron, you know, I'm going to make the most expensive movie. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do like, when you don't play by the rules, people want to take you down. Like, how dare he make that? How dare they do that? That's why every time you see a bold choice being made, we want to root for the failure. Yeah, you see the people in here rooting for the failure. And I love that this is kind of like Milos Forman's theme, honestly. Like, I mean, I think his best quote about it is, you know, 
I feel admiration for rebels because I lived twice in my life in totalitarian societies where most of the people feel like rebelling but don't dare to. And I am a coward because I didn't dare to rebel and go to prison for that. That, I guess, is why I admire rebels and make films about them. What he's speaking of is like he grew up, you know, in Eastern Europe during the time of the Nazis. He lost both of his parents in concentration camps. He lost his mom in Auschwitz. He lost his dad in uh, Middle Baldora. His dad was like a person who distributed banned books. And then he grew up on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. You know, growing up in Czechoslovakia, like during communist control, you know, he was considered a traitor for like leaving Czechoslovakia and becoming an American citizen. And when you look at his movies, like you just keep seeing that, you know, like we've already covered him once. We did him with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, which is just a movie about Jack Nicholson rebelling against the society who he just does not want to fit in. He, If this society will have him, he doesn't want to be a member, you know? And then Mozart is a different kind of rebel, but he's still a rebel. Like he just can't fit in. There's like nothing in Mozart that can fit in here because his brain works too fast. He's too talented. He doesn't know how to play by the rules. I mean, in a way, I feel like that's pretty much like all of Milos Forman's movies. You know, it's about somebody who's doing something different. Larry Flint trying to say that society is the problem, that society is censoring him, that society doesn't understand him. Man on the Moon, you know, Andy Kaufman, nobody understands this guy. He's a genius on a different dimension. It's all these misfits. And like looking not just at like, hey, here's the guy in the way that people do with like a biopic. Oh, he's a genius. Da, da, da. He did the thing and everybody loved him. It's like, here's the guy who's too smart for everyone. And watch how society crushes this guy. Watch how he doesn't understand right. him. You know, you think about the name of this film, Amadeus. It's not Mozart. And, you know, what Amadeus means is really interesting. The middle name, Amadeus, when translated from Latin, means love of God. Oh, it's where my name comes from, kind of. Really? Well, sort of, Amy. Most names oh, yeah. with AM have okay. like a friendship or love connotation. Oh, wow, okay. All right, yeah. so there you Amiable, go. yeah. What he's saying here is like, there are vessels that are special, supernatural, whatever they, however you want to view them. They're not of this realm. Like this movie, I think is very clearly saying God bestowed this amazing talent on this person. And why are we forsaking them on some level? You know, and at the end, they'll have the final laugh, but they'll be dead and they'll die in a mass grave. Like, but that's Andy Kaufman. And like you said, and it's like, yeah, like we're, we see this. And I think that we want to see people succeed but we're envious when they do we want to see people with amazing talent but we also are rooting for them to fail i think it's activates this thought in all of us why are they allowed to act this way i'm playing by the rules why are they not playing by the rules and then when you realize that you don't have to play by the rules it's kind of scary because then you can't make up excuses for why you haven't done what you wanted to do Right. Here's somebody who's not playing by the rule. They've succeeded. Now that immediately goes, well, then you can succeed if you don't play by the rules. But now you're too locked in the rules. So it really is this constant mind fuck of, yes, talent's a part of it. And yes, all these other things. But that's really what's going on. Yeah, because, you know, there's that scene towards the end where like Amadeus is on his deathbed and Salier is there making him finish this, you know, funeral march. And part of it is, you know, of course, like he's trying to drive him to kill himself by writing this thing. But when they're working together and when when Salieri is the one writing down the notes, what you also hear is just, this is all Salieri wanted. He just wanted Mozart to also look at him like an artist, right? He wanted just to understand how he works. First bassoon, tenor trombones with the tenors. 
go too fast. Do you have it? Go too fast. Do you have it? First bassoon, tenor, trombone, what? With the tenors. Identical? Of course. The instruments I... doubling the voices. Now, trumpets and timpani, no. trumpets and D. No, no. Listen no, to me. I don't understand. Listen. Trumpets and D, tonic and dominant, first and third beats. It goes with the harmony. Yes, yes, yes. And it's sad because he doesn't really quite get it even there. He like, That's the closest he gets to really seeing how genius goes. And that scene, I think, is so funny because there's like two stories about how they shot it. Like one of the versions is that Tom Hulse says that he on purpose like talked too fast and skipped some of his lines because he wanted to make F. Murray Abraham seem confused and catch up. Like he, uh, he confused him on purpose so that F. Murray Abraham would seem sort of frustrated. Like, oh, he's not saying all the lines. What's happening? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. He wanted to throw him off balance. But then like another person says that also part of it was that Tom Hulse was wearing an earpiece that would pipe the little notes of music into his ear when he had to like hum along with something and that the earpiece wasn't always working and sometimes it would go dead and then he wouldn't know how he was supposed to hum it and it would like make him look like he was summoning the thought out of his head to try to like feel the notes. And so it plays, I think, really well in that dynamic, but it plays really well for like the two of them. I mean, I think they kept their distance from each other, not like hardcore, but a bit so that they would have this tension on set. But then at the same time, Scenes like this are also why I think this movie is nine million times better than like Maestro, right? Because Maestro is a movie about a guy who loves music, worships music, music is his life. It's about his like complicated love life on the sidelines, you know, as Amadeus is too. But like when I saw Maestro, I was so disappointed that I didn't get any sense of actual music in there. You know, I didn't understand how his brain thought or wrote. I didn't feel like I witnessed it. I didn't even feel like that movie really like told me why he was great or helped me articulate why he was great. There's nothing in that movie that compared to like this scene early on. The scene where Salieri kind of describes exactly the beauty of listening to a Mozart song. On the page, it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse. Bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. <laughs> and then, suddenly, high above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until a clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. This was no composition by a performing monkey. This was a music I'd never heard. I mean, I want that in my musical biopic. I want to come out of there feeling like I also get your music. I also get it now. I can, I've liked it, but now I understand it slightly more than I did coming in. Maybe it's the difference between how both of those stories are told. Maestro is a little bit more reserved, but it's like this, I don't know. I feel like I'm part of the sloppy creation of, I, I feel like the way that Mozart is showing you like everything about his personality is 
you see the maelstrom that he's creating around himself. And that's how the music is kind of coming out. And I think that's why the movie kind of ends on that scene. Like that scene is the closest that we get to seeing him compose. It's a hard thing, I think, to understand how to do that. I don't even know what that is. You know, it's like, is it fun to watch people paint? Yet we make movies like Pollock and things like that. You know, I don't know. We make so many movies about writers. I'm like, man, the idea of somebody watching me in my sweatpants staring at a screen. Nobody wants to see that. No, and I think you have to find ways to make that process visually interesting. It doesn't always work. I think that that's why this movie, it's it's in the DNA of this movie. You know what I really wish I could have seen, though? I really wish I could have seen the stage shows with the cast even before this movie was made. Because the Broadway cast that they did out here, you've got like Ian McKellen as Salieri, you've got Jane Seymour as Costanz, the wife. You can absolutely imagine Jane Seymour killing that part. But what you've really, really got that I would have loved to see is Tim Curry as Mozart. You know, Tim Curry coming off of Rocky Horror Picture Show, doing Mozart. I couldn't find any clips of this online. I could find like some clips where he talked about it, but nothing where like he actually, you actually hear him perform it. And I just think he would have absolutely killed it. What you do hear though, what you do have online, which I thought was so fun, when they do Amadeus here in Los Angeles and for the Mozart part, they cast Mark Hamill. And like, oh my goodness, the TV news reports on Mark Hamill doing this. So funny. First, I just want to play this one, which is about like just sort of announcing, can he break free of his Luke Skywalker typecasting to do this? Mark Hamill found fame playing Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars movies. He's playing the part again next year. Being so identified with the character, he found it difficult to be considered for any other role. Now to get out of the typecasting rut, he's taken on a part that is light years away from Luke. I mean manly love, signore, not male sopranos drinking or stupid couples rolling their eyes. Call that a third Italian rubbish. <laughs> Mark hopes that playing Wolfgang Mozart in the Tony Award-winning play Amadeus is one way to convince producers he's a versatile actor. I, I think I have an element of surprise going for me. I mean, who would think that a kid like me would wind up in one of the best English plays? I mean, I can't even believe it. And then I found one where somebody reviews the show. And oh, my God, they just have the perfect TV reviewer voice. My Lord. When this intellectual cat and mouse debate works, it cooks, it blazes, flashy costumes and sets, body humor and the pomposity and ignorance of the emperor's court. When Peter Schaefer's script philosophizes about God and man and C-sharp major, it's pretentious and it's boring. Congratulations, Mark Hamill, for a change of image. Mozart's part's bratty, it's foul-mouthed, and it's unappealing, mostly. Hamill's, well, he's too American for this powdered wig parade. I mean, Mark Hamill's story is that Milos Forman would not even let him audition, because not even necessarily that he was going to do a bad job, according to Milos, but more just like, we can't have somebody know this face. Like, this has to feel just like a complete unknown face coming out and, like, shattering everybody's expectations. Well, this is interesting, too, because I wanted to ask you about the after effect of this. I think that F. Murray Abraham goes on to some real success after this film, right? Like he becomes F. Murray Abraham. As I know F. Murray Abraham, he is this guy, right? He goes away from the Fruit of the Loom commercials. And then I look at like Tom Hulse and I wonder if he has the same kind of reception into things that we see with um, The Exorcist, you know, Linda Blair and things like that. You know, I, I was surprised when I looked at his credits. Like he didn't really... Like, he's in a lot of stuff. I guess I was surprised a little bit about where his career went after this. Yeah. 
I think when I was a kid, I got him and Yahoo series confused sometimes. Oh, wow. Would never have gotten that, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> well, they both had the same hair and the same energy. I think I just assumed Yahoo series was the guy in Amadeus. This is me being a small child. But like, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't cross our path. Again, I mean, I think the number one thing he does that might cross our path later, probably not, is he voices Quasimodo in the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame yes. movie, which I have never seen. But yeah, I mean, he really just like went back to theater, just dedicated yeah. himself to that. And it's strange that it's almost, in a way, that story of like, I popped up, I'm great in this movie, here I am, you're looking at me at these awards, and then what happens? No, and look, he's nominated for a lot of different things, right? And he and he wins awards, too. You know, he was in uh, Spring Awakening, he gets an Emmy Award for the Heidi Chronicles, but he really does kind of, I thought that he would really blow up onto the scene as like the next giant actor. Yeah, like you could see him doing, I don't know. Tim Robbins stuff, right? Doesn't right. he have kind of like a Tim Robbins vibe? Yeah, and and you know he pops up obviously in like Parenthood and Fearless and and Frankenstein, but it's not it's not really the same thing, you know. And and I wonder if sometimes you get these like little pops where it's just sort of like we take you for what we wanted and then that's it, you know. It's like because it just just the difference of the roles that he gets, and I don't know if it, if he doesn't want to do them or whatever. It, it's incredibly different between him and F. Murray. Yeah, I mean, that brings us to the Oscar night and like the Mozart versus Salieri showdown. And of course, this is what happens. Finally, justice for Salieri, F. Murray Abraham wins. It would be a lie if I told you I didn't know what to say because I've been working on this speech for about 25 years. <laughs> uh, but you were not going to hear any of those speeches because I, none of the speeches were less than 45 seconds. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it's easy to gamble everything when you've got nothing to lose. And Milos Forman had a great deal to lose when he gave these brilliant roles to Tom Hulse and me. And his courage became my inspiration. There's only one thing that's missing for me tonight, and that is to have Tom Hulse standing by my side. By the way, I thought that was really sweet that he spent his speech really just keeping it short and giving that nod to Hulse. I mean, I cut it, but like after he says that little line about him, there's 30 seconds of applause, enough that he runs out of basically his entire time to give a speech. They start to play him off and he's like, oh, wait, I didn't mean to only say that. And he just jumps back and he's like, and I love my wife. And then he leaves. That was his big moment. It was like him putting the spotlight on the two of them. It's a very interesting thing to be up against somebody who is, you know, another lead, obviously your performance is based on their performance and vice versa. It is Salieri's movie, though. I would say that Salieri is a lead actor, and even though the film is called Amadeus, I, I think that Tom Hulse is sporting in a way because the movie revolves really around him, you know, and his version of events. And I wonder if that would have helped in anything instead of putting them head to head like that. I could imagine that. Although, man, a, movie, a, a character with that much screen time being put in supporting. I am looking a little bit, too, at F. Murray Abraham's career. And I he also had a low-profile film career after his Academy Award. Uh, Leonard Maltin actually talked about this. He said, like, uh, professional failure following early success is the F. Murray Abraham syndrome. Oof. Um, but Abraham did confront him on it. He goes, the Oscar is the single most important event of my career. I have dined with kings, shared equal billing with my idols, lectured at Harvard and Columbia, if this is a jinx, I'll take two. And then he also said in that same interview, even though I won the Oscar, I can still take the subway in New York and no one recognizes me. 
Some actors may find that disconcerting, but I find it refreshing. I mean, I think that that is a very good dimensional perspective for all of us to kind of carry through us as we enter an award season, right? It's yeah. the biggest thing of your life, but also, hey, it's good to have a life too and be able to like get on the subway. I mean, it's funny, like I found some good interviews with Milos Forman, who, by the way, we barely got into it, but like shooting this movie on location in Czechoslovakia, him going home to film this in Prague was also just crazy. They were there for like six months. He had to basically promise the government that he would go home every single day after filming and not go to any meetings, not like talk to anybody, not like, you know, incite a rebellion inside of Czechoslovakia to the point where like they hired as his personal driver, his best friend from when he was a child, kind of as a threat to say, if you do anything we, the government don't like, we're going to go after your best friend. And we know exactly where he is because you hired him. I mean, the yeah. stories from the set are just wild. Like everybody kind of figured that their hotel room was bugged at a certain point, because if the cast was on the phone talking about how life was going in Czechoslovakia, if they started to actually talk about life, you know, what it was really yeah. like there, the phones would just go dead. Um, the New York Times sent a reporter to go cover this. And, you know, they managed to get a visa. They showed up at the airport. They were legal. But when the reporter tried to, like, actually go through that final little bit of, like, customs, the Czechoslovakian government wanted to go through their personal address book and, like, write down the names and numbers of everybody they knew even back in, like, America. So the reporter was like, no. And then they had to fly home. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Madness. So, but, like, as, as Mueller said, like, you can't film this Viennese past anywhere but Prague, which just, like, I would point my camera and it just still looked exactly the same. This movie as a whole, from the acting to the production, the casting, writing, I believe that this is one that got it right in the Academy Awards. Of, and, you know, don't you agree? I do. I really do. Stretching the biography just enough to make it a really, really resonant story about art and creativity and jealousy and emotion and agony. I mean, I think that this movie feels so beautiful and so relevant and so alive today. I think it sets a bar of what a good biopic should be. And I think we've really awarded and or at least nominated a lot of real boring biopics after this that didn't get why this movie was so good. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, when Milos went on Letterman to ask how he felt about winning his second Oscar, he was very, very funny about it. Here's, here's the, the question you're sick of. Was it as big a thrill or bigger thrill this time than it was in 76? Well... Two is better than none, much better than none, little better than one, mm -hmm. not as good as three, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for, for most people, one is a career. You can, you can die a happy man. You, you've proven to the world uh, your talent. Why should I die? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> Speaking of him winning his second Oscar, let's go back to the episode we did about his first one, about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I feel like he's nodding to in this movie every time you go into an asylum. It's like... Oh, you thought Cuckoo was bad? Just wait till you hear about what the 1700s were like for people who had mental issues. And I have to say, I know there's a lot of talk about Nurse Ratchet as the, you know, one of the most evil characters in cinema history. In this watch of it, I don't walk away thinking that she's evil. I know we talked a little bit earlier about Louise Fletcher and her idea of treating this character as someone who really wants to help these people. Is she doing it the best way she can? In her mind, I think she is. I feel sympathy for because when she walks in she does greet the staff she does greet the nurses she's not like for lack of a better term like a dick her face and the way that she exists in this film only at the end do you see her really start to lose it but she seems angelic 
I kind of agree. Like, I don't think I ever had so much affection for Nurse Ratchet as I did on this watch. My heart breaks in that moment at the end when she picks up the dirty hat, like when her hat's been on the ground and you just see her holding that and looking at it. She's got emotion. She is a human being. If you're running a mental ward, do you want one of your patients to be rebelling? Absolutely not. She deals with McMurphy in a way that I feel like is fair until she gets vindictive because there's a moment where they could put him back in jail. And instead, in that moment, she's like, no, I'm going to keep him here. And I won. So, Paul, where do we want to go next in our grand Oscar exploration? Well, I would like to try this idea. This is a movie that got a lot of hype. It was in the tips of everybody's tongue. Rightly so. Um, But there's another movie that I remember of recent memory that also had this kind of phenomenon. This movie that everyone felt like, yes, this is me. Oh, my God. It launched so many careers. It really was a film that I think defined a year. And that is American Beauty. Kevin Spacey, Annette Bening. It's a movie that I feel like I'm curious if it holds up. Me too. Me too times a million. I'm very interested to watch this and like and really dig into it with you. American Beauty is available wherever you get your streaming films. You can also check out your local public library where you can also pick up uh, a streaming edition of it right there. Amy, this is a fascinating conversation. And you know what? Uh, I know you and I both uh, shudder at points to watch three hour long films uh, in the space of what we have to do in a, a regular week. But man, I enjoyed this. Oh, me too. Paul, I love what we do. I love talking about movies with you. I (laughs) do too. All right. So next week, American Beauty, check it out. Make sure you check out our Arc of Swing shirt available at Tee Public right now. It looks great. My book is available for pre-order. I appreciate it if you do do it. And if you do do it, go to my website and you'll see all the awesome things that you will get if you pre-order a book right now. I'm talking about autographs. I'm talking about access to an exclusive website. Oh, so much more stuff. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richman, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producer, producers Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo and our MVP Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. It's almost like whoever named Friday knew it should be celebrated with free fries. Free fries Friday at McDonald's. Get a free medium fries with any purchase of a dollar or more on the McDonald's app. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 930 to participate in McDonald's excludes tax. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs. 
containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.